Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv, and I'm joined here today with Alex, founder and CEO of Lena Health. And today we want to talk about why it's so difficult to innovate for the elderly. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I part of my journey has been in finding this big problem at the Texas Medical Center for uh, how, how do we support seniors at greater scales? And one of the things I saw is ultimately that the way that it's done today is tele- telephonically through nurse navigators. And so the question was, how do we engage them through technology that they are utilizing? And how do we do that effectively with high engagement and high adoption rates? So that's what we've been focusing on uh, for the last three years and doing really well on. Um, let's just start. Um, we can start with maybe just getting your elevator pitch on Lena Health, actually. Yeah, so Lena Health is a, we're an organization, we work with health systems and payers mm-hmm. that gives patients, seniors, a virtual personal assistant that takes care Mm -hmm. of all their tasks, all of the things that they used to have to do themselves, like scheduling appointments, getting their refills delivered, getting transportation, all of that done by autopilot through a real human virtual assistant that they can engage with through SMS chat. Um, And what were you doing before founding Lena Health? So... uh, I was working at the Texas Medical Center. So the Texas Medical Center is the largest medical center in the world. It's got 60 institutions, 12 of which are the largest healthcare systems in the country. Um, MD Anderson, known Mm -hmm. for cancer, and many others. And my job there was ultimately in innovation strategy. I worked at the Innovation Institute. Mm -hmm. And I worked with these organizations to help identify pain points, opportunities for improving and innovating in healthcare that will drive both patient care and improving outcomes and quality. And uh, so that was ultimately my role. I had this opportunity that I had an access card to all these health systems and I could Mm. ultimately talk to patients, observe and see where we could make improvements. But of all of the things you could do, um, why uh, elderly care? Because I think geriatrics are often ignore it's like an often ignored department right yeah yeah well i think that's the reason i saw it as an opportunity because Mm. it is ignored so really my journey began in meeting a individual his name Mm. is, is joseph as i was making my way through the hospitals i ran into joseph he was admitted and i had a chance to speak with him Mm. and ultimately there was something interesting about his journey. He is what is considered to be a frequent flyer in the healthcare system. Yeah. He goes to the ER often. He's uh, from the ER, he's admitted and spends five to 10 days in the hospital. And when I spoke with him, it was clear that there was something unique about his journey. And I began to d- take a you know, deeper look into his medical history. And after speaking with him and cross-referencing his notes and uh, what is in his chart, I realized that you know, a lot of the reasons why he was being admitted were non-clinical reasons. And um, so it led me to believe that there's something unique about seniors in that there is an opportunity in helping support them in a unique way, 
generally supporting with their non-clinical needs. And that's ultimately what led me to believe that there's something here with seniors. Um, and then led me to the rabbit hole ultimately of looking at how are they being engaged today they're not adopting any applications. They're not. Mm. They're not utilizing any of the patient portals, logging in into the websites of these hospital systems. And one of the things that I knew anecdotally, mm. just evidence was coming out, is that seniors are texting. And so it just okay. sparked a, a light bulb okay. that there was an opportunity. How can we use text to engage them in a new way? Yeah. Um, deliver <clears throat> a new patient experience that's novel, that's concierge-like. And it seemed like texting was a really scalable way that we could that we could uh, start off. And then so that was ultimately the, the spark of the idea. I was going to say that because when you said virtual PA, I was like, I don't know if my grandma <laughs> would be able to yeah. like operate a virtual PA. But it, if it is just like a text based system, I feel like yeah. it's like simple enough. Yeah, so we do know that they're not downloading apps, mm. but they are texting. So we uh, early on, I knew that I couldn't build some type of application with some avatar or some. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we knew it, could, it had to be conversational through text because that's how they're already con conversing with their family and friends. Yeah. And, and roughly it's about 70 to 75 percent of all seniors. And. You know, we, we tested this out. How do we uh, first connect with them, connect them mm -hmm. with, a, with a real virtual assistant, a human assistant, and, and see what engagement was like? And it turned out that they, they do like to engage through SMS text. They find it convenient, the asynchronous yeah. nature. They don't appreciate the phone tag that tends to happen with their nurses. They leave a voicemail. They have to call back. They can't reach them. Long wait holds. And so... They found that this was, you know, a really great experience for them, and since then we've we've really been scaling up texting with with seniors. Um, when you said that Joseph was in the hospital for non-clinical reasons, um, can you talk about, like, in general, what are the non-clinical reasons why we would see elderly patients um, yeah. in end up in hospital? Yeah. So, you know, typically we think there is some type of complication that happens mm -hmm. in their health and they, whether if it's their blood pressure that goes up and they have to call, yeah. the, they have to go to the ER because it is an emergency in those cases. In many cases, the, the actual reason of going into the ER is mm -hmm. clinical. But when you look at the root cause of yeah. what caused that complication, the majority of the time it's unnecessary complications. Mm -hmm. And what do I mean by that? In this case, Joseph, when I saw him, he had been hospitalized after going to the ER mm -hmm. for, um, you know, he began to feel bad and he ended up yeah. requesting, you know, an ER visit. And it turned out it was because he missed his medication. Mm. And he, he, Joseph is a cerebral palsy patient. He's got multiple chronic yeah. conditions and one of them is high blood pressure. He's diabetic. And so he began to feel nauseous and and uh, so real reason, but he stopped taking this medication, which was really important medication. Mm -hmm. And when I dug deeper with him, it turned out that he didn't get a refill. Mm. And patients generally have to get refills for these long-term chronic conditions every 90 days. Yeah. That's generally what the, what, the, what the time period is. And I asked him, well, what happened? Why didn't you get the refill this time? And he told me that he didn't have the contact information for the pharmacy and he just didn't call them and he forgot to call them when he was supposed mm. to. And the reality is that 
this is usually what happens when things fall through the cracks. Something as simple as yeah. I didn't reach out or I was on hold and I decided to call them later and I never did. And mm -hmm. that is ultimately a non-clinical reason. It's whether if it's managing your appointments and you have to cancel and you never book it again, mm -hmm. um, you can't go to your appointment to get the screening that you need because yeah. you don't have transportation. You can't afford your medication, so you never get it. All of these are non-clinical reasons that end up in unnecessary complications. And what I found was that for Joseph, it turned out mm. to be the majority of them as I reviewed his past year. So that was ultimately an insightful moment for me that there was something here. Interesting. Um, I'm kind of thinking about two different things right now. So um, number one, I wonder if the real root cause is um, almost a systemic issue with Western culture and how we actually treat elderly um, people in Western culture versus um, you know what I yeah. have observed growing up um, being from Hong Kong. And then number two, um, to what extent is it also related to loneliness? Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I think both of those things sound mm. right to me. Um, in Western cultures, certainly we've we've. I, I come from South America, where yeah. also the culture is is quite different. In the in the way that in Western culture, we we value independence. Mm. So as as people age, as seniors age, they want to live independently. Yeah. They want to live alone at home and they don't want to bother their kids. They don't want to be yeah. a burden. And it's their choice. They don't want to be, right? Mm -hmm. and, and kids often, their adult kids want to help. They want to be there. But the, our, our elderly parents sometimes say, no, I want to live on my own. Mm. I don't want to go to a nursing home. And so we see this rise of wanting to age in place is what we typically hear it age in the U.S. in place? Age in, age in place. They don't want to go to a nursing home. They yeah. don't want to be institutionalized and they want to live continue to live in independence as long as possible without maybe even moving in with yeah. the kids and that's what's really valued is what we've seen in western culture mm. whether if it's primarily for us I, that's what i've just heard in the u.s whereas you know in south america where i come from it's very normal for the the, the grandparents to live uh, intergenerationally with their kids and the grandkids always in the home and yeah. that support is just much easier so I think certainly that's one of the reasons and as a result you, you see then uh, a lot more uh, loneliness and social isolation mm. when I first started Lena we focused on the socially isolated seniors mm. because it was so acute with them yeah um, it's just a, a lack of social support and and uh, so yeah, it, those are some of the social, uh, you know, social reasons why some of this is arising. But the other systemic thing I think that we observe in the, in the United States mm. is that healthcare has changed so much. There's been so much consolidation, mergers between all of these hospital health systems, mm. and it's made healthcare incredibly complicated even for the average person that may be tech-able and young like me. It's, mm -hmm. um, it means having to figure out 
you know, ask questions, okay, I, I have to pay for my, my care here. Do I call my insurer? Do I log into this portal? They have to send me a different link. Mm. Incredibly complex. The patient experience has become with multiple different stakeholders, digitally and non-digitally. And as a result, we have uh, a really complicated system that ultimately impacts senior disproportionately because they just did not grow up with that level of digital acuity that, that yeah. we have. So I think um, systemic in terms of cultural, cultural reasons, but also systemic in terms of the healthcare environment that, that has arisen as a result of just changes over the last several years. I see. So the healthcare environment has become so complex that yeah. even if you weren't already struggling from like the, you know, many diseases and comorbidities that a lot of elderly um, patients will have, that you would already be confused, essentially. Yeah. 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 You know, I, at the Texas Medical Center, 60 member institutions mm. and many massive hospitals. So a lot of the patients that I would follow around, get to know their experience and observe them, they would have uh, about five different hospitals that they would need to go to within one week. Mm -hmm. That is crazy. You have to know where you go to. Yeah, even these hospitals are massive. You have to navigate different floors, different buildings, different phone numbers. They yeah. all don't talk to each other. Um, add on top of that, the different community resources that they have to navigate sometimes to afford their care. And it, it is truly a maze. Uh, and mm. I think the Texas Medical Center being this um, massive hub of healthcare really showed how complex it can be, but it's a representation ultimately of what we see in the rest mm. of the U.S. Interesting. And um, I mean, just from, you know, you starting this company, um, do you feel like it's weird being a young guy running <laughs> a company targeted towards like elderly patients do you sometimes get like looks no not i don't i don't but it's a good question i think <laughs> i think that uh it feels natural to me because i come from a cultural a culture where it was ultimately normal to yeah uh be taking care of our grandparents mm -hmm. and so i'm from i was born in brazil i was raised in bolivia mm -hmm. and my it was normal for the kids the grandkids to be ultimately getting the medication for the parent for the grandparents helping them and making their meals and mm -hmm. so for me it's second nature uh and when i first started this company i became the personal assistant of joseph okay and it was clear to me that there was huge value and benefit in having this intergenerational engagement between mm -hmm. somebody that is my age and you know my in my 30s and somebody who is mm -hmm. you know older and uh, elderly like like joseph where they can teach us things from their time they can talk yeah. you know a lot of this engagement is not only about getting their tasks done some a lot of seniors reach out whether mm -hmm. for it's text or sometimes they call their personal assistant to just talk and it goes yeah. back to this this question that you had about social isolation and loneliness. Some of them just want to connect. And it 
we've, I found it to be truly fruitful with Joseph when he wanted to reach out and connect with me as somebody that's younger. He wanted to tell me about his life. He wanted to tell me about, mm -hmm. you know, the time when this singer was, you know, I think he loved uh, Elvis and, and yeah. he told me everything about Elvis. So, um, you know, some people may ask, uh, it would be, you know, why are you starting a company for seniors? Well, I think there's a big opportunity uh, to to make a, a massive impact. Yeah. And um, and there's a big opportunity to make an economic impact in healthcare. And so, um, I don't think it's weird at all. I think it's a, actually a big opportunity to uh, support the the intergenerational. Uh, uh, engagement for, for this population by a younger population. Um, and outside of um, just this population of patients, is the idea to basically take this personal assistant and expand it across, you know, all yeah. indications? Yeah. Because it could be basically just like repurposed, right? Yeah, exactly. So what yeah. we do is not really unique for seniors. Mm -hmm. This non-clinical patient support in navigating their care, navigating their social needs, mm -hmm. is based on evidence. So it's called lay health navigation. And what we do is we digitize mm -hmm. what's been shown in cancer across different populations, whether if it's younger, mm -hmm. in pediatrics, in, in younger adults, but also in the elderly population. Yeah. It's shown to make um, big impacts on reducing avoidable complications and achieving big savings in terms of avoidable cost of care. So we just digitize that and we make it available to, to patients. And we mm -hmm. focused on seniors because there's such a big need and there's such a big barrier to use of technology that we can do so with conversational engagement through text. But the next big opportunity for us is areas like uh, Medicaid in the US, that's low income populations mm -hmm. that generally uh, have a hard time challenge in, in our challenge in navigating the healthcare space because it's complicated. They're not insiders. They don't know where to go to get certain resources. They don't know where to go to get their screenings, for example. And um, big opportunity for, for that population as well. And the reason I, I really focus on these two is because they're the fastest growing uh, populations in, in yeah. healthcare for value-based care in the U.S. And so there's a big need to support them and lower mm -hmm. their, their avoidable encounters with costly care, achieve savings. And in, the, in a world in the US where healthcare is rising so incredibly fast, uh, it is very much needed. Um, and how long have you been working on the startup so far? It's been a little bit over three years. Okay. Uh, we launched at the height of the pandemic um, by accident. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, we were really, uh, we had found this challenge, this problem even before the pandemic. And, and you were um, working at the hospital at the time yeah. during COVID? Uh, before COVID. Before COVID. Yeah, I launched this right yeah. before COVID. But did you, did you quit your job to start Lena Health? Yeah. Okay. So I did. I, I was lucky to be funded by the Texas Medical Center yeah. to pursue this. Uh, Texas Medical Center has a really great. And you were a doctor, or were you working in the commercialization? No, I'm not. I'm not a doctor. Okay. I am. Uh, my background is in biomedical sciences okay. and software engineering. Yeah. So I'm a product guy. Yeah. But uh, 
I, I actually mm -hmm. got into medical school and I dropped out. Uh, so oh, ultimately cool. because I love yeah. uh, how the idea of solving problems with technologies to help us scale mm -hmm. support for patients. And yeah. so my, my love has been how do we leverage the tools that we have at our disposal mm. um, to, to make a big impact. Um, so at the Texas Medical Center, I, I was a, a strategist for all yeah. of these uh, health systems, um, as well as a fellow eventually, which allowed me to mm -hmm. have a year's time looking at this problem specifically uh, with TMC's funding, but also eventually they supported us uh, to fund and commercialize this company. Uh, so yeah, we were we were ultimately very lucky to do that, and that was mm. my transition away from my time at the Texas Medical Center to to just full time founding and working on on Lena Health. And what's been the kind of biggest change for you from um, working at Texas Medical Center to now being the CEO of a company, a startup? Well, I think um, <laughs> I think what every entrepreneur yeah experiences is what I've experienced is that uh, a job feels very safe mm. um, your income you have it uh, every every two weeks and yeah. you know what you're supposed to do mm. for your job you know your responsibilities but when you become a founder you have no direction you have yeah. a general like vague idea of what you should be doing but it's not clear at all and you just have to get really comfortable with that uncertainty yeah. on top of the uncertainty that you have to reach really impressive milestones to continue to get funded. Um, and so I think it was really that level of uncertainty that yeah. you have to get really comfortable. For me, Un that was really- Unsupervised learning. Unsupervised yeah. learning. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was a, a solo founder. So mm. I, I think in general, that's challenging. Um, and yeah. I was able to get a really wonderful team together that now, I have more support than I could ever imagine, but starting a company is very challenging because of that shift. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that was the biggest thing. Are you still a solo founder? Mm-hmm. I am a solo founder. Yeah. Still a solo founder, but yeah. I have a wonderful CEO or COO that really mm. runs our operations, and we have a, a large team of our Lena assistants who we've been lucky that we figured out how to hire for this cultural. Um, what we call our core competency of empathy, mm. of, of advocates that love to help seniors and transform their lives and build bonds with them. And so um, once you get those little details right, yeah. the company can continue to operate without you and I can uh, ultimately focus on other things. And um, so that transition has ultimately allowed us to continue to grow you know, without, even though I am a, a solo founder. Yeah, I was a solo founder. Um, and what was your experience? It's crippling. Yeah. <laughs> honestly. Um, it's just like you, you're doing everything. Yeah. I mean, like, especially in the beginning, I think the first year for me was definitely the hardest. I don't know yeah. if you would like a shared experience there, but, um, yeah. The first year was a, it's like hell. the hardest. Yeah. I think it's generally normal for a first-time founder even if you mm. have multiple co-founders to feel imposter syndrome to feel like you're not really going to make it but I think that's amplified for a solo founder because you have yeah. nobody to lean on you don't have somebody to bring you up when you're down right and so 
I think that's one of the things, the benefits that people talk about having co-founders is that when you're in your low, that person can be that support. They're generally going to be yeah. the optimist voice and vice versa. But when you're a solo founder, you have to dig deep and do that yourself, which is yeah. really hard. <laughs> yeah, because I was saying this earlier in um, a previous conversation about transparency and, um, and you know, the whole concept of radical candor. and. Yeah. Basically, transparency works when things are going well, right? Yeah. Um, but when things are not going well, you cannot um, share, like, you know, you have to filter through before you talk to people in your team about things. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Um, you can't just, like, every time you feel like things are not going well, tell your team, I think the company is going to shut down because yeah. then the company is going to shut down, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so how do you <laughs> deal with that, um, you know, uh, filter? Do you just, like, bring it home, call your parents, or, like, what's your strategy there? Yeah, yeah th one of the best things is uh, me as a solo founder has been getting good executives that, that mm -hmm. I can lean on. Um, but then also getting good mentors. I think mm -hmm. that's been the number one thing for yeah. me. I was lucky to meet several um, mentors that have been close to me. One was mm -hmm. at the Texas Medical Center. He was one of my bosses uh, while I was launching Lena. His name is Toby mm -hmm. Hamilton. He previously started the first micro-hospital systems yeah. in the country, became uh, widely successful, and that's one of the biggest organizations out there. Um, He's done it. He's a CEO. He's done it. Mm -hmm. He's been through it. And he's candid on some of the biggest yeah. excruciating, bone-crushing things that, that he experienced. Um, and then two other previous CEOs and operators in, in healthcare. Yeah. And the reality is, is that healthcare is unique because it is so hard. Mm. Um, and so I, I found a lot of, um, a lot of uh, support from people that have gone through those really bone-crushing experiences. Mm. People that I can go to and say, hey, this is going wrong, or I don't know what to do with this, or am I even thinking about this right, or I'm now thinking really pessimistically about this, I may need to pivot, Yeah. what's going on, what do I do? Those people can be really good sounding boards because they understand, they understand how hard it is. So that was, as a solo founder, indispensable, um, continues to be today. To, to bring on mentors? Mentors, yeah. yeah. I made them advisors uh, mm. in the company. Uh, obviously, they had, they had good strategic knowledge, but as like CEO coach, they're, they're, um, they help mold me as an, as an executive, which is really powerful. Um, but they can also be that support system that, they mm. can help bring you back up on your moments of being down, which there are many. Yeah. And so I think they are like mentors. They're like friends. They're um, because of because of that factor that they bring in, which is really crucial. And um, in terms of your experiences so far, um, is there a experience or memory you can share behind the number one thing you would recommend? someone to do as a founder CEO? The number one thing, um, well, I think it differs in, in the stage 
of where I was at at Lena. When I first started the company, the number one thing that was really critical, no questions asked, was to really be 100% involved with our users and our customers. So we mm -hmm. had our, our first customer, Houston Methodist, really incredible partners that were willing to be our first adopter. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, to this day, I don't know um, how they were so brave to let a company of one, it was just me, one, mm. come in and, uh, and then experiment and deploy a product. But during that time, um, you know, I essentially brought in um, Diana, who mm -hmm. became the first Lena assistant. Yeah. And it was her and me taking care of patients. I mm -hmm. was a Lena assistant. And yeah. that experience of touching those patients' uh, lives and supporting them through our product that we were, our service, through technology, virtually, um, allowed us to mold it Mm. over the course of a year and get it closer and closer and closer every week to where it should be. And I think that in that first phase of the company where you're just launching, the number one thing is not yeah. to try and sell. It's not to try and recruit the best people. I think it's to get as close as you can to mm. what the product should be because that's the number one moment in time that you have to do so. Yeah. And um, the closer you can get in those very early days to that, I think the better. Um, later on, it became about how to find the right talent, mm -hmm. how to, uh, it, it became clearer and clearer as a result of all of this work with mm -hmm. being closer to the end users, to being close to our customer, like Houston Methodist, what the messaging should be. Yeah where it, it became easier and easier later stages to hone in on the messaging, to mm -hmm. uh, recruit a really incredible team, uh, bring in all these advisors that mm. were uh, able to help us see around corners. So early on, touch your, be very close to your users and your customers. Later on, focus on how you can scale yourself and, yeah. and so that the organization can continue to grow at faster and, fa and faster paces. I think for me, even at this early stage, those two things I think are the most important things. And what do you think is the number one thing not to do? And uh, do you have a story behind that you could share? Yeah, I think that um, the number one thing that, I, I think a humbling lesson mm. has been that you hear a lot of advice out there for CEOs, mm -hmm. even in healthcare and just generally, that you need to do this for pricing. You need to, you can't, you should not price it this way. You should, mm. you shouldn't do pilots. You shouldn't do X, Y, or Z. And the reality I think though, is that that creates this mentality of you coming into a customer. Uh, we're a B2B company. We yeah. work with large health systems, large, mm -hmm provider groups, uh, payers. And those are very relationship-based mm -hmm. um, interactions. And those yeah. people really react to how you, uh, if they can perceive you as someone that they would like to work with and yeah. somebody that they would like and somebody that actually cares about mm -hmm. what you're doing, about your mission. And so I think the biggest mistake that I made and I think a lot of people make is that you can come in wanting to be a great negotiator 
when in reality you want to come in and be a great partner with them mm. and figure out how to get them to the 2x, 3x ROI or whatever the ROI that matters for them for solving yeah. the actual problem, understand what their challenges are, their issues, and exude that passion that you have for the problem and, and the uniqueness of the solution. And they will want to work and you will figure out what's the best solution. And then you'll become a great negotiator because they will want for you to also have a really great outcome for your company because they believe in it and they believe in you. And so I think the, my, the thing not to do to come in and try set terms and try to be a hardcore negotiator, I think mm -hmm. this business is very much relationship based. And um, I think that that would be the number one thing that I would instill in someone trying to come into this world for the first time. What, in specifically in B2B healthcare, right? In B2B healthcare. Don't you find it so strange that there's such like non-standard pricing? I think that was like a big uh, topic we were discussing yesterday, right? About yeah. how to even price because yeah. um, in B2B healthcare, it's a bit wild, wild west. It um, is. Yeah, I was surprised too. I talked to a lot of founders that are later stage than me and mm. I asked them, how are you doing this? And everyone said, it's still the wild, wild west out there. Mm. You are, here are some frameworks, et cetera, but um, at the end of the day, it's still a discovery with them. Yeah. It still depends on their organizations. A lot of them are used to paying in different ways, different structured. So, um, yeah, that's why it makes it so much more important to have more of a discussion with them, build that relationship early on. And I, I find it interesting because sometimes it's like you could build something that adds so much value um, but the the winners in the market did not win necessarily because they had the best product yeah. but it's also because they had the best like business model and were able yeah. to get that to enough people because yeah. one of the the key killers in healthcare I feel in b2b healthcare is um, how slow it takes to adopt a new solution. Yeah. Um, and it's not really talked about where if today I needed help from, you know, a company, I'd probably need to do, you know, two weeks scoping, six weeks yeah. contracting, payment, and then get started like next quarter. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, there's not really this... Um, like transparent buy that you really get in other yeah. industries? No, not at all. It's really challenging. These large organizations have a lot of moving pieces. Mm -hmm. And when I put myself in their shoes, I uh, it took me a while to actually put myself in their shoes. I began to understand these yeah. executives. They're working with this massive ship that's hard to move mm -hmm. and budgets change all the time and they have to sell it to somebody that's completely disjointed from the initiatives that they mm. understand they need to go through. And it's um, after I began to see it from their point of view, I began to realize that I need to become more of a partner. And that makes it hard because each organization is different. Their cultures are different. So as yeah. founders, it's really challenging to do that. Yeah. Uh, especially as a first time founder, I was a product guy, engineer. Mm. I would sit in the back room and code um, I really had to go through this learning curve of how to um, how to 
you know, tell a story, but also how to work with these large organizations. And in healthcare, especially in patient engagement, in a mm. pla- in a envi- in a in a pa- place like us where we're touching patients' lives and we're trying to achieve savings, it's much more important to be evidence based. And so yeah. the bar is much higher for a company like ours to show outcomes. And I think what kills a lot of companies is that they are not judicious enough with their funding to have enough runway to show those outcomes. And I think these health systems, they need to see those outcomes to make the case upward. Mm. And they need to see those outcomes to make sure it's not hurting patients. Yeah. And so we've had to do clinical studies. We still continue to do clinical studies, mm-hmm. collect a lot of data. And I think that's just part of the arena that we all yeah. collectively are uh, battling in to try and improve healthcare is is that's part of the game. Mm. It makes it really challenging, but I think it, I think it sharpens the sword. Honestly, the yeah. best companies that are going to survive are going to be those that are very lean, mm. that understand the industry, understand these customers, and that are very evidence based. Um, and then, I think that that is a moat in and of itself, and I think that that's what's missed usually. A large incumbent with you know, maybe $60 million in funding. You know, it, it happened mm. often just recently. All of this craziness of funding companies just for a promise. They think they can come here and give free free products or low products, mm. uh, unique business models, but it doesn't work in healthcare. And healthcare is relationship-driven, outcomes-based, and you have to be very pragmatic mm. and very disciplined. I think that that's both uh, a challenge, but an advantage for founders that can really figure out how to navigate it. Yeah, because I guess um, you had come from a product background, and I wonder if like a painful part of that is you literally can't like do the conversion on product. You know what I mean? Like, there's yeah. no like conversion to be had on the product, right? Yeah. 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 I mean. My background has always been digital health through large Mm -hmm. enterprise organizations, working with provider groups. And so it's not like D2C where you can, you know, purchase customers Mm -hmm. and iterate on a sprint basis. Mm. You have to uh, you have to sell, uh, understand the problem, sell to a large organization. And then if you're B2B2C, which means that you actually your end user is a a patient, Mm -hmm. not the person that bought it. Then you have to, after you sort of sold the idea, you have to iterate with the end yeah. user um, while you're flying the plane, which I think is diff- it's harder, um, and which is often why the standard is so low because mm. the 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 payer of the of the product is detached from the user. So, um, but we 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 felt very importantly that engagement was was really essential. So we piv- we made sure that we were always iterating early on to achieve high engagement. For Lena, we have 80% higher engagement, uh, yeah. monthly active usage, which is 5x industry standard. Um, we have uh, over 70% enrollment success. Generally, mm. companies like Livongo, these publicly traded large companies that are digital tech-enabled services that are yeah. the standard have 30% okay. adoption rates. And so we worked really hard to make sure that this is world-class experience for seniors. And yeah. I think that differentiates us in the market. I think more people should do that. 
So um, you're now running clinical studies. You're scaling across the U.S.? We're in three markets in the U.S., yeah. and uh, we have in the pipeline about three to four other states, states in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, really exciting growth for us, uh, but we are just getting started, ultimately. And what is the one impact you want to leave on the world with Lena Health? Yeah, so... Um, you know, I, I think the one impact I want to leave in the world is to make healthcare easier for seniors everywhere and to make it simpler to age in place independently and to be able to focus on the things that matter in their lives and not have to worry about the maze that is healthcare. Make it feel like it's on autopilot. And we want to make that more accessible to everyone. So I, I would say that, that that's, that would be, that's our mission. That's why we work hard every day. So in addition to the Health Creators community, you'll also find everything you need on healthcreators.co. That includes our educational tracks, vendor selection tools, CRO databases, and even which investors you should be talking to. When you log into healthcreators.co, you'll also have direct access to NewRoot for clinical development and a bunch of other resources you need to build better companies in healthcare.